Welcome to the Cood Street Podcast. It's late on a Friday evening in Chicago, and Gary K. Wolfe has just returned from a local convention. Here in Perth, in Western Australia, it's early on a Saturday morning, and we start talking about gender and the genre. As sometimes happens here on Cood Street, you join us mid-conversation. As always, we hope you enjoy it. Matriarchal mother figures, you know, surviving civilization kind of thing, like an Earth of Biden. Christian M. Well, I, I, I've got to admit, I'm, prob- I'm probably missing some that if I were to sort of, sort of sit around and think for a long time would come to mind. But, you know, I think when I think of female characters in science fiction, I either think of, you know, uh, plucky young girls who show up from time to time, uh, your Podcane characters or your Hazel Stone kind of a character or your... Um, the Benny Gesserit or something from June or, you know, like Paul's mother or those sorts of characters rather than up and up until a certain time where I began to, to note. Well, I don't know that I was overtly aware, but looking back, I can see that I was reading about, um, mat- you know, like just mature, you know, sort of women in their twenties and thirties and forties who are having adventures or getting involved in stories one way or another and taking control of the stories as any protagonist does. Um, right. But when you, yeah, particularly if you look back before, before the seventies, I would suggest they're pretty thin on the ground. Um, and even now, I mean, when, when I tend to think about when I started noticing strong female characters in books as a thing, it was probably um, around the time, say, Nicola Griffith and, and writers like that came on the scene. Yeah, well, that's good. That's pretty. It's the late seventies then. What? Ammonite was seventy nine or something. No, like no, that. later than that. Later than that. Um, that. Yeah, yeah. Griffith, Griffith came on the scene in in the early eighties. She might have had a few things in. I'm just thinking now. She, she was in Interzone before she had her novels published. So I guess what we're going back to. I I wouldn't think it'd be the seventies. I'd think it'd be it'd be later than that. But I would, you know, it would be one of those things where I'd have to cheat and look it up. Yeah, right. You, you may be right. She's not that old. Um. <laughs> no, she's not. <laughs> but it's interesting that she's actually moved on to writing historical fiction now. Rather, you know, I mean, having started in science fiction and written one or two, of my, in fact, one of my favorite science fiction novels in Slow River. Um, I love. Uh, it's a fantastic yeah. book. But ha- having I, written that, then she went on to the mysteries uh, with uh, Ord, or whatever the character's name was, and is now. Yeah. yeah. She's doing struggles. She told me she wants. To, she's she wants to do another science. She wants to get back to science fiction. I hope um, she does. I'm hoping that getting her to write this essay on Lee Brackett for me is pushing her in that direction because that was, that was an absolute that, that that made my whole trip to Wisconsin worthwhile. Yeah, it's funny. Nicola is absolutely in love with the Long Tomorrow, yeah, and hey. I've not I've met almost nobody else who's even read it. And she says, and she makes a very good point. A lot of the conventions of post-apocalyptic fiction go back to that book. Yeah, and 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 nobody knows about it. And everybody thinks Lee Brackett's a pulp writer who wrote Eric John Stark stories, which of course she was, but oh, still. Yeah. But didn't she also write uh, Empire Strikes Back? We keep going on about that, isn't that her? Well, she wrote the screen treatment for Empire. I don't think she actually did the final. Um, yeah. hey, Gary. Mm-hmm. Are we? And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. I guess we're recording. Welcome to the podcast. You, you, you started recording this without. About, well, we were in the middle. No, about, we well, about 
Yeah, about three minutes ago. I figured suddenly we're talking about something. Why should we waste this gold, this podcast gold of ours? Okay, uh, for, 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 our, for our, our loyal listeners, Jonathan has started doing teasers at the beginning of our podcast, so, <laughs> which I didn't discover until I listened to the last one and we've been talking for two or three minutes before we introduced anybody. <laughs> You've got to keep mixing it up, Gary. I guess we can. And, and also, you know, what I was afraid of, we, we, when we were going to get started on this and before uh, we got on the line, you, uh, you, you sent me an email saying that you had no idea what we were going to talk about. And then suddenly as a result of, and this isn't on the recording, as a result of your having been at the convention today um, and having encountered Nora Jemison, we start talking about exactly the kind of thing that we should be talking about on the podcast. We did. Um, I had a very, uh, well... Uh, First of all, I should explain what the convention is. There's a small, uh, self-described leftist science fiction convention here in Chicago, and I might as well uh, give them a plug called Think Galacticon, which is very consciously a spinoff from uh, from Wiscon. Uh, and uh, the uh, opening remarks tonight were saying, why, why should why should Wiscon be the only feminist, or for that matter, the only politically oriented science fiction convention? And it's an interesting point because uh, there are very few conventions of any sort that seem to have uh, political viewpoints, uh, or yeah. seem to encourage political viewpoints, or seem to, or, or, or seem to have, I guess, a thesis or an agenda. Um, and I, I don't think it's a bad thing to have an agenda. I know one of the things I remember reading in the history of fandom, yeah. in that great, mad, uh, awful, uh, bloated. But fascinating book by Sam Moskowitz called The Immortal Storm. <laughs> yeah. um, have, you ever, have you ever read that? No, I'm remarkably poorly read, Gary. Um, uh, the, the, being poorly read is no excuse. Um, <laughs> uh, can, can I just say most of us should probably be wearing like a badge of honor because there's so much to have read. But okay, mm. so there's this I, book which you and John Clute and everybody on the Fiction Mags mailing list has read that I've not seen a copy of. Tell me all about it. Um, Sam Moskowitz wrote a history of early fandom called The Immortal Storm. It was called the, um, and, and somebody pointed out at one point that this is, has to be the only historical memoir ever written in which World War II is an anticlimax, uh, because it really is about the organizing of the first uh, world science fiction convention and early fandom, and which, which more or less went on a hiatus uh, after 1942. Yeah. Uh, so, so the factions, the Immortal Storm, is this massive cosmic debate between uh, uh, the two groups of New York fans who locked each other. Wolheim was involved. Asimov was involved. Uh, a lot of people were involved. One of the guys who was an early uh, shaping figure in fandom was somebody named John Michel, M-I-C-H-E-L, mm -hmm. who was, I, if I'm recalling correctly, was actually uh, a, a devoted Marxist. And in the, in the late 30s, Marxism was still a part of fandom, apparently. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and the, the, a lot of the debates that went around among these people that, that, that are treated in absolutely epic terms. I mean, this is, uh, what's the title of Moorcock's essay? Epic poo. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Um, <laughs> but, but in retrospect, you begin to realize, well, wait a minute. These were people organizing science fiction conventions which at the time they were calling world cons, even though the world con at that point, I think, meant there were people from New Jersey coming into New York. <laughs> uh, yeah. They, they were doing this with ideological uh, 
ideological beliefs and ideological ideals which they wanted to promote at the conventions. And to some extent, that may have gotten lost. I, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I hear from people who go to, uh, well, I've been to one uh, United Kingdom Worldcon, mm -hmm. and it seems to be more politically aware or more politi politically conscious convention than the ones I've been to in the United States. And I don't know what they're like in Australia. Is there is there kind of an ideological point of view that you see in uh, in things like SwanCon? Not that I've ever paid attention to. No, I mean, in fairness, I haven't really paid attention to the programming at a convention in Australia. In fact, pretty much anywhere in the last fifteen years. Um, so that makes me a very bad reporter on the subject. I you do see some left. It's, it tends to be. Somewhere between left-leaning and libertarian, you know, like that sort of always slightly confusing-looking crowd, the Promethean lot, uh, oh, yeah, where, yeah. you know, where you know they're supposed to be, you know, sort of they're leftist, but they're libertarian, but they're whatever else they might be. So, so yeah, I mean, you get a lot of sort of. Now that I think about it, yes, in Australian fandom, I've encountered quite a lot of um, political discussion. And political discussion about science fiction. I remember certainly the absolute. Well, I mean, one of the most common panels that used to be on at conventions when I first encountered them was the regular "Let's lambast Heinlein for being right wing" panel. Yeah. Which went on and probably still goes on in conventions somewhere or other, you know, to this day. But certainly was a common theme. Um, and one of the things I'm finding interesting now is you're you're finding uh, Heinlein being uh, what's the word? Uh, Reconditioned, resuscitated, resurrected. I've got friends who are, uh, you know, gay friends, women friends, feminists, polyandrous, polyandrogynous. I don't know what's the word. Polyamorous. I don't know. Polyamorous. Oh, polyamorous. Yes. Okay. Who find Heinlein a much more interesting writer than than people gave him credit for earlier? Who wrote fairly interesting, complex female characters and. Did so at a time when there was no particular pressure on him to do that. Sure. Um, and and that, that 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 kind of thing I find fascinating. So when you look at politics from a, uh, uh, a, a particular political point of view, one of the comments that was being made tonight at the opening ceremonies of this thing, Galacticon, was that surely there must be another socialist science fiction writer besides China Miegel. Yeah, Ken McLeod. Well, Ken McLeod is obvious. Uh, I, I was not going to stand up and say Ken McLeod. Uh, because I don't stand up and say things anymore. <laughs> but, but by and large, there, there, are, there are a lot of writers that have very distinct political points of view, and, and, and we're thinking not only for tonight's convention of, of leftists, but let's face it, there are right-wing science fiction writers as well. Yeah, uh, and sure. Have been. And Scott Card is certainly uh, probably on that list. Yes, Although, and, that, and that chat was Eric James Harvey, the guy who won the Nebula for Novelette this year, him too, yeah. Right. Uh, so I, I'm not saying that science fiction should or shouldn't have a uh, political point of view. Mm. I just uh, I, I think the issue is I think there are two issues. Yeah. One is that there are subgroups of fandom that will look at one particular uh, set of expectations in in their characters. We were talking with Nora Jemison, for example, yeah. who's just finished the third novel in her trilogy that began with the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. And she was getting mixed responses from people saying uh, that, well, okay, she might have polyamorous characters or, or bisexual characters, but she didn't, maybe didn't do enough with them. And, mm. and, and, and the question is, 
you can't write to that subgroup. You can't write to a particular subgroup. But on the other hand, you have you have a broad group that that is, and maybe maybe the majority of fandom that seems to be blind to political and gender issues. And should you try to address that group in the sense of making them aware of? Yeah, see, I don't buy the blind thing. You know, uh, uh, I've kind of been, been gone around and around on this a bit, but I've got to the point where my feeling is that I don't believe the blind thing. I believe there may be, you know, like oh, sort of like a willful sort of I'm not going to look kind of situation. Uh, you know, it, it's this thing which does come up. You know, the, the classic sort of, uh, how do you pick your stories? I only read the, I only pick the good ones. How do you pick the good ones? I pick the ones I like. How do you pick the ones I like? I pick from the ones I happen to be reading. But I don't have any bias or any prejudice. I'm just picking the good ones, which is that sort of self-fulfilling circular argument. And right. I think that applies exactly to the circumstance you're talking about as well. You know, are fans are, are there large groups of fans who, fans who are politically unaware in their reading? I suspect that there's a large group of fans who w want to be politically unaware and so aren't willing to engage or don't want to engage with the political arguments of the texts that they're reading, and that's fine. That's their their right. But right. that they also then um, want to argue to some degree against the idea that you should have a political argument around these texts. And I think that, off the top of my head, because I haven't thought about it much before this moment. It's equally valid to do both. I don't think you can ask, expect a reader to have to have a political point of view on the, what they're reading, but I think it's equally valid for readers to choose to who wish to. Um, I think that's true. I think the question is when readers make demands on writers, and especially newer writers. Yeah. Uh, writers. Uh, I had a conversation with Tim Powers, who does not like to be uh, uh, called on political or gender or racial or social issues. Um, because he, he doesn't think about that. He thinks of himself as a storyteller. He thinks his responsibility is I have to write the best story I can, and some of the characters in it may or may not be gay or, or, or whatever, but that attitude is, um, is the attitude of an experienced novelist who is very confident in what he's doing. He knows what story he wants to tell. Uh, he's very popular among wide groups of readers, and he's a very, very good novelist. He is very good novelist. So, but is it, a bit, no is it also a bit willful? I mean, is it, is it that kind of also sort of I'm not going to ask the question as to whether I am being uh, sexually biased or you know, gender biased or politically biased or anything else. I don't want to look at that for whatever reason. You know, uh, whether or not it's there, I just don't want to acknowledge it and think about it. Well, and then there's, there are other issues besides um, you know, political, racial, gender bias. Of course, yeah. There are religious issues. And, and, yes. And you can certainly trace... Um, Tim's Catholicism in, in his fiction. Sure. Um, and it, it informs his fiction the same way it informs Gene, Gene Wolfe's fiction. But they're not writing, uh, they're not writing religious uh, uh, tracts in the sense that they want you to understand how important the religious yeah. issues are. The religious, the religious issues inform uh, the themes of the books. There are, um, I'm, try I'm trying to think, well, uh, Chip Delaney writes characters who are very interesting uh, sexually. Yeah. But they're always subordinate to whatever story he's telling at the time. I've not read his new uh, long novel, which um, I can't remember the title of which he himself described as one part science fiction, one part philosophy, and one part gay porn. Mm. Um, but I'm sure that if that's what he says it is, that's what it is. Oh, yeah. And see, I, str I struggled with that book. That's the They Came Upon a Spider's Nest or something like that, right? Yes. Well, and I, I, I really struggled thinking about that book because um, part of me goes like, well, I don't really want to, I mean, 
I'm glad that gay porn exists in the world, right? But I don't particularly uh-huh. want to read gay porn. Do I want to read a, science, a Sam Delaney novel? Yes. Do I want to read his science fiction? Yes. Do I want to read his mainstream fiction? A little bit less so, but yes. Do I want to read anybody's gay porn? Not particularly. So I mean, like, how do you approach a text like that? You know, is it okay to say I'm gonna get, I'm gonna skip it? I mean, I think on an individual reader's uh, level, it, it, it's perfectly okay to obviously, but you know, it's it's a dialogue to, that you have to have. And, and also, I mean, I'm feel, feeling right. This is a messy conversation, but um, the point where the issue of bias and everything else comes to play is when you're portraying something and it becomes obvious that you're leaving it out in context. You know, so if you were to write a novel, fantasy, science fiction, or otherwise, and set it in Harlem in the 1970s, say, mm. uh, and not represent African-American people in your stories, then you're, at some level, deliberately whitewashing things. Because they're part of that story no matter what you do, even if you're, you happen to be telling the story of a white character in that location. Yes? Mm. Is that, and, and, and so, if, whereas if you happen to write a story set in... I don't know, uh, 16th century, you know, in, say, 1850 with the Amish people in Pennsylvania and you don't talk about uh, a gay character, mm-hmm. maybe that's a reasonable thing to omit from that particular context. Or if you're... If, if you're oh, that's a good question. We're, we're giving advice to writers when you and I don't know how to write fiction at all. Yeah. Um, but if, if yeah, if, if you're talking about this Amish community, there might very well be a gay character. In sure, there. That yes. would be a very, very radical kind of part that almost would have to be a point of the plot. Mm-hmm. That would be a, a difficult issue. Um, when I'm, Well, to get outside of science fiction for a minute, there was a, a controversy when James Baldwin wrote, uh, published uh, Giovanni's Room, yeah. which was his, his gay novel, basically. Yeah. And it was a novel that dealt a lot with homosexual experiences, mostly in Paris. Um, at that point, he had published a lot of what are now classic African-American uh, novels in the sense that uh, the tradition of African-American literature, which is realistic, social realism, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there was a bit of an outcry that here is, here is Delaney, who is who's the voice of uh, the African-American outcast, writing a, um, a basically a novel about gay men in Paris. What's he doing? He's, yeah. he's not doing his job here. He's not, he's not meeting the assignment. Sure. And I think we start putting writers in a in a box where they they are they are meant or they are being told by some segment of the audience that you have to represent what we want you to represent. Uh, then you're being unfair to the writer. Yeah. And to some extent, I think what what Chip wants to do when he writes uh, a novel like this is there are multiple worlds that make up his life. Of and course, he wants to include them all in one novel, and that means that novel is going to have some gay porn, which he's sure. very fond of. Uh, I, I, I was talking to him about this, and I said, well, you mean erotica, because I was thinking there is a market <laughs> erotica. There's a, there's a writer named E. Lynn Harris, who's very popular even among women writers in the States, who basically writes about, you know, uh, male gay love. And he said, no, I'm not talking about erotica. I'm talking about gay porn. Uh, let's be honest. <laughs> and I said, okay, that, he wants to write that because that's important to him. Um, yes. And he's at stage in his career, let's admit that Samuel R. Delaney is at a stage in his career where he can write pretty much whatever he wants. Yes. Um, and he's earned that right. Uh, whether what? or not the mainstream science fiction audience will want to read that is another question, and I suspect not really his problem. 
I would, I would, I'm going to guess that if Samuel Delaney's concern was attracting the, um, the core science fiction readership, he wouldn't be attempting to write that book. He would be writing something else. He might write The Splendor and Misery of Bodies and Cities, Gary. That'd be nice. Yes. I mean, not, um, the, not that I'm annoyed 20 or 20 some years later. Uh, in fact, it's 27 years later, isn't it? 27 years we've been waiting for the splendor and misery of bodies and cities. I believe it is, yes. And we're not going to see it, are we, Gary? I doubt that very much, but I don't want to uh, malign a writer that I... That, uh, my general... <laughs> we, we've, we've talked... Okay, we've talked on this podcast a number of times about Joanna Ross, who is yes. one of the defining writers of my generation. If you read... We were talking about, uh, I think, before the podcast, or maybe not before the podcast, depending on when you started recording, <laughs> Um, but what happens to female writers of a, female readers of a certain generation yeah. when they find no female protagonists other mm. than yeah. you know the, 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 the hapless uh, young girl in, in, in the cold equations? And um, we could ask the same question: of What happens to male readers of a certain generation? How do you learn if you read mostly science fiction? How do you learn about? Uh, about women characters, about gay characters, about uh, you know bisexual characters or, or trans characters. Um, by and large, when I was growing up, you didn't learn about them from science fiction. No, uh, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd read stuff from um, Grove Press. So you'd read Henry Miller. You'd read John Genet, uh, the stuff I used to read. But in the science fiction world, the two writers who actually changed my attitudes, I think, toward gender probably would be Joanna Russ and Chip, uh, Samuel R. Delaney. Oh. Well, I look back to when I was starting out, and I'm that weird time slip where you know, it was older science fiction. But mm-hmm. the first time I remember issues of this kind coming up, and not trans issues, but I mean other issues, uh, were when Heinlein started treating uh, issues of different structures of marriage and relationships and that sort of thing. Yeah. That, that's, that was the first time I really encountered it in science fiction. And at that time, and I was 12 or 13, 12, 13, 14? Um, mm-hmm. Science fiction was was the you know the, the the principal part of my my reading, so um, that was slightly eye opening. But it was only yeah it was only elsewhere that you're going to encounter a novel that had a, a predominantly gay characters or uh, predominantly African American characters. Yeah, never. Okay, yeah. You know. As, as soon as I mentioned that with, with Delaney and Russ, I thought, okay, if you go back to a slightly earlier generation of writers in terms of age, if not in terms of publishing history, the other ones that came to mind would have been Theodore Sturgeon and Philip Jose Farmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Sturgeon wrote uh, not yes. only about gay sex, he wrote about uh, fetishistic sex, he wrote about all, uh, sex, sexuality of one sort or another permeates his stuff. And Phil Farmer was writing, uh, it's interesting when, when Chip thinks he's writing uh, or decides he's going to write gay porn. Phil wrote porn, porn, uh, <laughs> massive, massive amounts of uh, essentially, well, mostly heterosexual, but a lot of a lot of uh, sadomasochistic and uh, uh, sort of sexual fantasies built into his, uh, his fiction from the beginning. So, so there's there, but but here's the thing: uh, Farmer uh, was considered a complete renegade at the time. I remember talking to our friend Charles Brown mm-hmm. many years ago um, about whether Phil Farmer was 
a mainstream uh, classic science fiction writer. And Phil said, uh, Charles said, no, he's too much off by himself, which I think was meant to be a compliment. Mm -hmm. But by and large, uh, you didn't see a lot of people trying to write like Philip Jose Farmer for a long time. You didn't see a lot of people trying to write like, uh, like Theodore Sturgeon for a long time. And to this day, I don't think you see anybody trying to write like Joanna Russ. No. No, I don't. Well, it's writers, but yeah. with that degree of passion. Well, I, I think you're probably right. I mean, I, I will say that Russ plainly brought, brought a particularly fierce intelligence to what she was doing. So it's a high standard to try and mark anybody against. And it's hard to assess whether the writers we're seeing writing right now will ultimately produce that sort of body of work or that, that sort of important as body of work. Um, but I would, I would roughly agree with you. I mean, there are, there are people around who are much more oh, deliberately addressing these issues now. Yeah, and um, we, we, we should probably not uh, uh, omit the fact that there have been you know, major novels since then. There's been Suzette Hay Hayden Elgin, who dealt with the issue of sure. language and gender in the way nobody else said. Uh, Susie McKee Charnas, who I've said many times, both in print and not, that her Holdfast Chronicles... Uh, partly because of the long delay before the final volume appeared, uh, didn't ever quite gain the traction that they probably should yeah. have. Marion Zimmer Bradley. Uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley, the same way. Uh, uh -huh. the, the number of people I meet, even today, who've read Marion Zimmer Bradley fall into two camps. They're either Dark Over fans uh, who are as invested in the Dark Over fan fiction as they are in Marion Zimmer Bradley's works, mm -hmm. or they're people who have read nothing but The Mists of Avalon but for whom the mist of mists of Avalon changed their lives. I mean, the mists of Avalon may have been. Let me see if I can say this. Let me see if I can defend this. Uh -huh. I will say you can attack me. That may have been the most defining uh, moment for feminism in classic uh, Arthurian fantasy ever. Okay, so you're saying that, if I'm clear, the mist of Avalon is the most defining feminist text. At its point, at that point in time, in Arthurian fantasy. Yes, that was what I said. Now, at am I that, right? Can I possibly, though? I have to say, it's a fairly tiny, focused little sliver of stuff. I mean, I know there's a lot of Arthurian fantasy written, but you know, maybe, <laughs> sure, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Okay, right. Actually, yeah. no, no, but I tell you, what it will say though, which is maybe spreads it a bit more and makes it a bit more interesting. How about saying, was it the most defining feminist work in epic fantasy at that time? Um, particularly, particularly if you don't consider, as, in, as I don't, um, uh, Earthsea as epic fantasy. I tend not to think of Earthsea as epic fantasy. And I think, uh, okay, and I think of other things from roughly the same period or later, like Catherine Kurtz, mm -hmm. that are more like epic fantasy. But I think what the myths of Avalon probably did was it took a template which people were familiar with, possibly at that point, other than Tolkien, mm -hmm. maybe more than Tolkien, the most familiar template in all of fantasy literature, which is the Arthurian, the matter of, of, of Britain, as, as, as uh, yeah, yeah. medieval chronicler said. And it said, look, you look at this very familiar material, and there's a woman's point of view in this material. Mm. There's a there's a point of view in this material which is not excluded from the earlier chronicles. It's not necessarily excluded from Mallory, but it's not explored. Sure. It's implicit. So she basically said, okay, if you look at that material, 
and you can find that there are women and women's lives and women's thoughts and women's philosophies in that material, then maybe all the fantasy material out there has a feminine point of view that's been underexplored. Sure, sure. And, and, and to some extent, I think that's what she set the template for. I'm not saying that, that she necessarily rewrote Arthurian fantasy, but she rewrote the way we read the traditional fantasy narratives. Hmm. And I'm somebody who is not a Stone, Marion Zimmer Bradley fan. No, no, but I mean, this was, I mean, if I recall rightly, uh, Miss Vavilon was like, I want to say it came out in like 1982. It was early in 1980s. So, at that point, we're in the second wave of epic fantasy, I guess, because the Tolkien stuff has come through in the in the fifties. Uh, it's it's pushed through again, really, and be revived in the, the early sixties. We've had the we've gone back to Lynn Carter with the uh, adult fantasy classics, so we've discovered the past. Yeah. Then in the early in the mid nineteen seventies, all of a sudden, all at the same time, Steve Donaldson and uh, Terry Brooks are showing us so that we can write big knockoffs of that, and they're all right. b- boys running off uh, to find old men who'll show them how to turn a plowshare into a sword and get their empires back. Um, you follow that through. Probably the first person to be to reinterpret that is Guy K. That's fine. I'm just trying to think whether where are the because given that epic fantasy, I mean fantasy generally seems to be where, as a very rough rule of thumb, with enormous numbers of exceptions, where we see more writer female writers being successful. Uh, um, where do you see for the first time a major female fantasy writer in terms of sales and? profile come along as opposed to talent and skill and quality of work and where do you see them start doing this kind of thing um because off the top of my head allowing that i'm probably missing 100 things that i'd remember if i would look at carefully maybe Uh this is that turning point text somewhat um hugely successful particularly if you allow that the only equivalent wasn't strictly speaking fantasy at all which was of course the Anne mccaffrey prone material right which was also hugely successful, selling lots and lots of copies. Um, I think her most successful book of the day, of the t- book up to that point, would have been White Dragon, which came out literally at that point. Because uh-huh. I think they're about contemporaneous, those two books. Um, and you were, I mean, you were seeing in, you know, outside the genre pretty much things like Clan of the Cave Bear and that sort of thing, which had right. major female pr- protagonists at the front of an epic uh, story. But um, it's not immediately coming to my mind, though I may just be hitting a blank spot with it and we'll get beaten up in comments quite understandably for missing it. But I can't think of something other than that that sits. And it's interesting because Mr. Vavilon was always a book I could never finish. I don't know why, because I read 20 Darkover novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure what it was. And I, 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 don't, I don't believe it was the female uh, point of view that stopped me warming to Mr. Vavilon. Otherwise, I think the other 20 Darkover novels would have been pretty much impossible as well. Um, mm-hmm. um, but I hadn't thought... Yeah, it's interesting. I'd, I'd really just thought of it sort of as annoy, an annoying book with a blue cover rather than an important fantasy novel. But maybe think, maybe it's a really important one. Good point, Gary. You should go. It's an important fantasy novel, and I think we need to hear... We, 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 we need to... This is when we need to consult with galactic suburbia and just put in a footnote and say, are we right? Uh, I can, um, but, but, but my, my thought is that maybe I'm thinking maybe Mary Stewart's The Crystal Cave predated that. I'm not sure. Um, well, actually that's true, but see, that's interesting because then what uh, doesn't, doesn't the Mary Stewart stuff tend more, well, I guess that the Bradley does as well, but doesn't it more drift over into the, um, 
the um dum, 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 dum. The, the historical area. Yeah, it does. And Mary Stewart was an historical novelist who wrote yeah. really good romance novels. And uh, and one of them, when you get into the Crystal Cave, uh, segues into fantasy, yeah. uh, which is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Cecilia Holland has written legitimate historical novels that segue into fantasy. Gene Wolfe has written historical oh. novels that involve fantasy. Uh, the point of view of the characters being the guiding point of view of the book. And as, as Cecilia has told me, and, and, and Jean has told me, that if these characters believe that they see ghosts, ghosts are part of that world, they're part of the narrative world. Um, you, you, you read that world from within the point, from the, within the worldview of the characters. And I think that that's what Mary uh, Stewart was doing. Still, the Crystal Cave, I remember thinking, this is really cool because... She is for the first time like acknowledging the fact that there is some link between Arthurian fantasy and yeah. modern fantasy. Well, um, the, Crystal, the Crystal Cave, for what it's worth, is 13 years earlier than the Mist of Avalon. Okay. Uh, that probably was the first... Mod okay, I'll, I'll get in trouble for this too, but that's why we have good, smart listeners. If we didn't have listeners that were smarter than we are, we wouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. um, so... But it seems to me that the first rethinking, uh, and, and The Crystal Cave is not especially a feminist book, I don't think, but it certainly had female points of view in it that we hadn't thought of much earlier mm -hmm. um, in Arthurian stories. I think what, what Mary and uh, Zimmer Bradley did was to make that very explicit and to make it very explicit in terms of what we now perceive to be modern fantasy narratives. She was not moving from Arthurian material, from historical uh, material into fantasy the way Mary Stewart was. Mm. She was beginning with fantasy and saying, if we use this lens of fantasy and look at the Arthurian myths, what stories are untold in there? Yeah. And that seemed to me to be very important. And I've read, I've talked to any number of women who just uh, are stunned by that book who are not necessarily Darkover fans. Yeah. Um, and my own reading of, uh, well, uh, I'm trying to think. I was re I was probably reading Marion Zimmer Bradley before that book because I think Darkover must have started before that, right? Oh, yes, uh, probably 20 years before um, that book. So I know I'd read some of the Darkover things. They didn't have that impact on me, but uh, yeah, uh, the Mist of Avalon did. Oh well, a bunch of them did actually. I mean, there were books like The Shattered Chain and Hawk Mistress, that which had had quite an impact on me. But I mean, she started writing Darkover. He says quickly, you know, sort of uh, mm -hmm. consulting. ISFDB in the in the mid 1960s. Really? Yeah. That's I mean, almost before my time. My uh, she in fact, in fact, 1950s. So there you go. She was wow. she wrote a dark over a novel called The Planet Savers that came out in 1958. So I dare say that probably as a uh, re-examiner of gender since. She consistently featured um, gay characters. She yeah. would be one of the most important writers in the history of the of the genre, who we don't tend to think of that way on a broader spectrum, particularly or on a regular basis, particularly. We're we're so used to applauding the names we already know, who deserve to be applauded. You know, yes, the Tiptrees, right. the Russes, these sort of people. That to some degree, Bradley maybe gets swept swept onto the carpet. Well, looked to set aside because she was very commercially successful. And the latter stages of her career, because of her weakness through illness and everything else, were occluded by a whole bunch of texts that were done by diverse hands in, you know, in sort of collaboration with her. And that, 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 that's still going on. I mean, yeah. God is still... Um, I, I think you're right. I think her other problem was being prolific. 
mm. uh, being very successful, but being very prolific. Because when you talk about um, Joanna Russ, let's say, you're talking about a, a fairly limited set of works. Uh, a lot of the short fiction is unfamiliar to people, uh, but the novels, the, the, the major, everybody knows that the female man is, is toward the center of that. Everybody yes. knows the adventures of Alex is important, the two of us, and so on and so on. Even when you talk about Le Guin, who has written a lot, uh, there are very specific classics that you come back to again. You come back to Earthsea, uh, you come back to uh, The Left Hand of Darkness, you come back to The Dispossessed, yeah. you come back to um, The Late of Heaven, and so forth and so on. With Bradley, when you mentioned that Bradley had been publishing in the 60s, I think I must have been reading dark over stories without knowing there were dark over stories because I hadn't quite put that shared world thing together yet. Yeah. Uh, so, so one of the one, one of the issues that I think is endemic to our genre is that we have writers who just write an awful lot of stuff, and it's hard to figure out what's important among that stuff. I, that uh, that could be true. That could be true. I mean, and that that, that well, can sorry, yeah. I was going to say this is shifting gears a little bit, but. I was at the Locus Awards in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame induction, and Harlan Ellison was inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, which I don't think anyone could reasonably argue about. No. On the other hand, one of the problems that I've run into when I recommend, I wrote a book on Harlan, and, I, and everybody should read it, even though it's probably out of print. Um, the thing I come up against again and again with Harlan is you have a lot of people who've read two or three classic stories, and then there are 1,200 other stories, and they don't know... <laughs> Yeah, um, and so it's it's a problem with Bob Silverberg. Bob Silverberg has written so many great novels. If you're gonna and, and 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 classic short stories, and he's been around for so long and he's been so prolific that if you were to ask if you were to ask me or you, which three Robert Silverberg novels should I read? Where do you start? Born with the Dead, Dying Inside, Lord Valentine's Castle. Okay, fine. Showing off, fine. <laughs> I happen to be very fond of. I've, I've been on this um, discussion group, which I can't talk about. I love all these people on Twitter who said they have secret projects. This is one I can't talk about for a couple of months, but I've told you about. It mm -hmm. involves a number of major science fiction writers trying to talk about science fiction that can be achievable futures or or things. How do you get there from here? As opposed to the question of. Um, purely mundane or alien invasion science fiction, and long-term space opera, which is great, but not not practical for somebody who wants to build these things. Yeah. And um, one of the books that came up uh, in, that I mentioned in the discussion was, was uh, Silverberg's The World Inside, yeah. which in terms of literature, it's, it doesn't hold a candle to dying inside in terms of its treatment of character, but it's the most interesting fictional treatment of an arcology as a living space that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. The first chapter of that was published separately and I think won a couple of awards, maybe a Nebula and a Eagle, called A Happy Day in 2381. And in terms of imagining the future, it's a classic work of science fiction. Um, and yeah, I would say that you're absolutely right about the three novels you've chosen because you've chosen cleverly three novels that covered different aspects of his career. But he's somebody who's done something in every part of science fiction, including what I think of as futurist science fiction. That's important. Probably so. I mean, the great challenge with getting a grasp on what Bob's written over the, the length of his career is that he's been such a skilled chameleon that he's been able to turn his hand to most anything. And that has meant that there's, other than perhaps 
a dry wit and a cool intelligence, there isn't much of a defining mark to a Silverberg work that you would say that, you know, like, like when I want Bob Silverberg, I'm getting that, you know. No, it could be yeah. anything. And, you know, I mean, that's his, his great talent, but it's also perhaps the challenge in making him uh, keep him fresh. That said, I mean, I, was, I saw a thing yesterday where, I mean, he's, he's got a, a 1960s um, crime novel. It's going to be reprinted by Hard Case Crime that's never appeared really? in book form before. It's coming out in the next few months. Uh, and slowly getting to the stage where for him, because of the world we live in now, everything of his is going to be in print. Everything. Well, I, I was looking at some of one of the books I have here, which I, uh, this is one of the, again, I've, I've whined about this too much on this podcast, about being a reviewer and you don't have the time to read everything you want to. Mm-hmm. But the, the Subterranean Press is doing the you know, collected um, stories of silver work. They're up to volume six. They are. And we're only into, uh, this is a book that's coming out this fall, uh, and this is 1983 to 1987. And when I pick up this book, the first thing I see just looking at the table of contents, sailing to Byzantium, I remember that. Great story. Do no, I remember that? Yeah. Gilgamesh yeah. and Outback, the Partner's Tale. He's doing. I mean, he, for, one of the things he does, which I think is fascinating, he he, he does earlier literary classics. He does Conrad. Yeah. He does. In this case, he does Chaucer. The Secret Sharer is in here. Yeah, right. These story. are classic stories. They are. Um, I uh, okay. Here's another outrageous comment that people can challenge me on. I think he is the finest pure literary craftsman that the field may have seen. Wow. By craftsman, it is a compliment, and it's, 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 a, it's a... Bob would know enough to see it as a backhanded compliment. He knows how to write science fiction in yeah. any form that he can write it in. Um, yeah. And he, he does it very, very well. He is... Uh, the, by that, I mean an eminent craftsman that has been said of, of of Robert Silverberg as a criticism yeah. that he is coldly efficient. He is a brilliant technician. He knows how to uh, write everything, but he but his work lacks passion. Okay. That's that's a criticism of him. Yeah, um, I think that common criticism comes from just an uh, an inability to accommodate the variety of work he's done. Because I was I was looking at the title of the Secret Chair. There's there's no lack of passion in those books. No, in uh, the stories at all. If you talk to Bob about it, as you and I have both done, he he basically says, "I can do that because I know how to do that." He sees himself as a craftsman. Yeah, I, I think he's a craftsman and, in the best sense of the word. That's what I mean. Yeah. But in the sense that if you ask, and he's he's at a stage in his career where he doesn't have to do this if he doesn't want to, but if you ask. Silverberg to write a Cthulhu story, he would write a really terrific Cthulhu story. Oh, sure. And whether he cares about Cthulhu or Lovecraft or the mythos at all, he knows how to do that sort of thing. Oh, look, I, I'm sure, knowing Bob, if he was, if he were so desired, um, I'm sure you could sort of take a random year where they'd published, you know, sort of, sort of those door anthologies, you know, sort of holidays in hell and vampires on vacation and all that nonsense. They publish about 12 of them every year. I reckon you could take a year's worth of output out of those, take all the themes, give them all to Bob, and say, write me a story on each of them, and we'll turn it into a book. And I have no doubt that he could do it very well, without batting an eyelid on anything you wanted. I don't think he would now, but certainly if you... In fact, I'm confident if you'd gone to him in 1960 with that equivalent, or 1955 with that equivalent offer, he would have turned them out in a week. 
Probably. I mean, I, when he was uh, taking a kind of hiatus from writing science fiction and did all these nonfiction archaeological books, and I actually read some of those um, because I, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who's not sophisticated enough to read really sophisticated. Oh, maybe I am now. <laughs> I would like to think so. But Bob's uh, various pop histories for young, they seemed like they were for young adults. Uh, were were ex- as competent as, as, as anything. They, he made good narratives out of uh, uh, you know out of ancient history. Mm-hmm. He is a born storyteller in the classic sense of the term, and uh, uh, he tends to uh, he, he, he tends to discount that I think more than the rest of us do. But I go back to the point I was making earlier about writers who are so prolific that mm-hmm. it's hard to limb their careers, and I think Silverberg is a good example of that. Uh, in, in the sense of craftsmanship, I think uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley may be a good example of that in terms of uh, uh, feminist science. Sure. Ma- Michael Moorcock. Michael Moorcock's a fantastic Moorcock. example of it. Michael Moorcock. How do you figure out which Michael Moorcock novels you should read? I've got no idea. I, I, in fact, I'll be honest. I, when it comes to Moorcock, I'm one of those other people in the sense that I'm one of the people who looks at and, and just doesn't approach. I tried one Michael Moorcock novel and uh, Gloriana. Mm-hmm. Didn't get into it, and that was just stayed away. I mean, the closest I've come to looking back at Moorcock since is when the Vandermeers co-edited that best event, that best of Moorcock, which at least began mm-hmm. to give you some some sort of peek into into his career. Well, Moorcock is one of those writers where if you go back, and I I, I read Moorcock intermittently because I couldn't keep up with him because you know, he's one of those writers that if you're going to really read all of Moorcock, you're going to read nothing else mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, but when steampunk came along, and even um, uh, well, no, not before uh, Powers and Blaylock, because yep. about the same time, uh, Moorcock was writing things like The War Hound and The World's Pain, yep. which is a terrific steampunk novel. Uh, and it's it's one of these uh, interesting situations. He was writing new wave stories, obviously in the '60s. He yep. was writing things like Gloriana. He was doing takeoffs on the Fairy Queen. He's done uh, Mother London. Um, I haven't read a fraction of his work. I've never been disappointed in it, but again and again, I've seen years later, something that Moorcock wrote, Breakfast in the Ruins is another one, yeah. um, would become a whole trend in science fiction, would become a whole subgenre at some point. Yeah. I was thinking, well, why is this new? Because I read this in Moorcock a long time ago. And um, uh, I, I, I put a footnote with that when you call it, when we, in regard to steampunk, because there were the writers especially Blaylock and Powers, and to some extent Jeter, who were doing this long before there was a sure. label for it. Sure, sure. Hmm. There's a lot to talk about in our field, isn't there? Um, that's one of the things I love about our field. That you, <laughs> you're, always, you're always beginning to talk about people, and then you realize, I haven't read enough of those people to talk about, and you think, okay, I could spend... Uh, I could take a couple of years off and just read Moorcock or yeah. Silverberg or Marion Zimmer Bradley. Yep. Or, or we're talking about prolific writers. Yep. And the fact that the reputations sometimes get diffused because of uh, the yeah. fact that there's so much stuff and so much of it is, is really competent. Um, uh, not, not always brilliant necessarily, but, no. but at least competent. And I've always admired writers uh, who can do that. And the craftsmanship aspect of the field you know who's a very good craftsman right now is Cory Doctorow. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. Different kinds of stories. And one of the classic craftsmen of the field 
whose daughter, this is one of one of my exciting things I hope to do at ReaderCon, <laughs> is uh, Murray Leinster's daughter. Wow, okay, cool. She's, she's, done, she's done a biography of her dad, uh, which McFarland will be publishing, I believe, sometime this fall. Excellent. Um, and, I, okay, and I, the only reason I mentioned Murray Leinster is because several years ago I was asked to do a reference book entry on him. Mm. And, uh, okay, I've always, he's always been there. You know, if yeah. you grew up reading science fiction, Murray Leinster stories were always there. And now people, okay, people know First Contact um, and, and a few other stories because they're always reprinted. Mm. But here's somebody who started writing science fiction with a runaway sky, skyscraper, I think, probably in 1927. Um, and was still publishing novels well in, in, until he died. And I'm not sure when he died, it was in either the 80s or the early 90s. Um, uh, under various names, under Will Jenkins, his real name, under Murray Leinster. And he covered every subcategory of science fiction, every subplot that you can imagine, and did it competently. Yeah. Whether there are classic stories, uh, classic novels there, um, I'd have to go back and look. Classic yeah. stories, absolutely. Uh, he absolutely uh, developed uh, ideas that became uh, you know, standard tropes in science fiction. Generation Starship stories, first contact stories. The first contact subgenre is named after that story of his. Yes. As far as I can tell. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, that's my idea of somebody who is just a consummate craftsman, uh, but maybe seldom, if ever, an artist, if that doesn't sound too elitist. Yeah, I think I take your point. I do think it. And, I, and my guess, Leinster wouldn't have objected to that characterization either. So here's a question for you. Hmm. When do you think the idea of writer as artist as opposed to writer as craftsman entered the science fiction field? Entered the science fiction field. That's interesting, because there was a, a generation, uh, the the pulp generation, mm. tried to make themselves a living at, at one one half cent to one penny a word, um, and at some point they began to think of themselves as artists. Uh, I mean, I would argue Silverberg, for all that he can be an artist, always thought of himself as a craftsman. I suspect Ellison thought of himself as an artist. From the beginning. Yeah. Um, I, right. And I think uh, Ellison, both Silverberg and Ellison were completely capable of writing stories to specs. In oh, the sure. 50s. And did. And there were a lot of writers that could do that. Yeah. All the spudders could do that. Mm -hmm. um, here, here's one example of, um, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the writers were permitted to think of themselves as artists, probably with the rise certainly of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and possibly with Galaxy. I don't think Campbell was that interested in them at all. I mean, there's no doubt that Bradbury thought of himself as an artist yeah. from the beginning. I mean, it's clear that the various okay. biographies... So, so even when Bradbury was selling to weird tales, he was thinking of himself as an artist. Um, but the idea that you could be an artist and you could write novels as an artist... I can't imagine having gotten much traction before the 1950s. Yeah. Because first, what happened in the 50s, where you you, you did have um, fantasy and science fiction. Yeah. Uh, did have uh, you know stories, uh, guys who grew up in the field uh, as readers and even as editors, like Daniel Keyes, who decided he's going to write the most beautiful story he can write, and it takes him years and years to put it together, and he ends up with Flowers for Algernon. Yeah. Uh, fantasy and science fiction again, 1959, I think. Um, 
So, so there was a generation of people there in the 50s, encouraged by Boucher and McComas and later Robert Mills, who could, uh, who could write artistic stories and beautiful stories. I think earlier than that, you'd see an occasional well-crafted story. Yeah. But, um, but sometimes, it, and, and you'd find bizarre kind of offshoots like Cordwainer Smith, uh, where you don't even know what to think of those stories. Yeah. Artistically, they work beautifully. He was doing them as a lark. He was writing them for fun. He was writing them to see if he could make a well-shaped world implicit in the tale. And I think uh, Tiptree was another example of that. Yeah. But neither Tiptree nor, well, I should say neither Alice Sheldon nor Paul Leinberger, I think, thought of themselves as being in the mainstream of science fiction writers. They, they were no, doing this. I would have thought as, not. Yeah. Um. So when did writers begin to think of themselves as writers? I don't know. I, I think you're right. I think Ellison thought himself as as one from the beginning, but to be honest, Ellison's stories in <coughs> super science fiction or future <laughs> science yes. in the 50s aren't that different from Silverberg's stories. No, no. In fact, it would be interesting to, some, to, to ask Harlan uh, if there was a point where his mindset changed, you know, sort of whether there actually was a point where he transitioned out of the 50s into the 60s and his mindset about what he was doing changed. And I don't know. That's pure speculation and nothing more on my behalf. But yeah, yeah. I, I, did, I, I did ask him that, yeah. and I know the answer. Yeah, the answer happened. Um, one of the big changes in the nature of uh, in the way science fiction writers thought of themselves, first of all, was the founding of Playboy. Yeah, in the early fifties, and Playboy and uh, published good fiction from the beginning. I mean, they were they were publishing um, you know what are now some classic science fiction stories, The Fly, for example, George Longola. Yeah, uh, but. Playboy led to uh, the emergence of imitation men's magazines. Yeah. Uh, and the two most important were Knight and Rogue. Um, and they published early stories by, certainly by Harlan, by, by Bob, by Alfred Bester, by all kinds of people. Even Gene Wolfe, I think, uh, published his first story in a magazine called Sir, S-I-R, exclamation yep. point. All, yep. these, all these had kind of softcore photo layouts in them. Harlan said that once he was writing for the men's magazines, he was no longer being held to the expectations of science fiction genre. Yeah. He could write anything he want. It could be science fiction if he wanted it to be. It could be a mainstream story. It could be a socially conscious story. He was, and so suddenly in, in the early 60s, this is probably around 1962, uh, Ellison and Silverberg and Vester and, um, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, Mac Reynolds, um, a whole bunch of people were writing mainstream fiction for uh, what were then seen as mainstream magazines. Yeah. Because they, at that point, they knew they couldn't they couldn't sell to the Atlantic or Harper's. Most of them couldn't crack the Saturday Evening Post or Collier's. But the men's magazines wanted heavily plotted, good adventure story fiction, but it didn't have to be science fiction. And they suddenly felt themselves liberated. Yeah. They could write anything they wanted to. You know, Gary. Hmm. We're on the very cusp of rambling, I think. Oh no, we're rambling again. We do this. Oh. It's, it's, it's our. It, you know what? I think it's our art form. I think it is. That I said, we we, we, maybe we should. What I'm going to say to you I, is, you know how we don't. Doing, yeah. Sorry. Just as a footnote, because we're both going to be in Reno at WorldCon. Yeah. Too. We're both programmed, so we can't do yeah. this. But at some con, we should do a discussion session that's just called rambling. Because <laughs> it's we, what we do well. You know, that probably should have been the name of this podcast. 
rambling. Rambling with, rambling with Gary and Jonathan. Now, you know how you're always resistant to us getting a theme song? Yes. Well, I think you need to join me in song as we end this podcast. I'm not going to do that. Wait till I tell you what the song is. Okay. The song, an old classic, Happy Birthday, has to go out to our mutual friend who today is celebrating her birthday. Ellen Clages. Ellen's birthday is today? Uh, according to Facebook, and I can't say it's wrong. So, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Ellen. Happy birthday to you. That wasn't too bad. We're, and we've also pretty much insured ourselves against any of our friends ever wanting a birthday song. For them again. <laughs> oh, I think we should end there before we do anything worse. On that cheery note, happy birthday, Ellen, and I'll talk to you next week, Gary. We'll talk to you next week. At this time, I expect to be at ReaderCon, and we'll see what happens. Okay. Take good care. Okay. Take good care. Bye.